I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 91 of the Overcast, the Seattle Times politics and news podcast. Uh, our guest this week is Abigail Dorr, campaign manager for the Yes on Initiative 1631 campaign. A bit of background on Initiative 6, 1631. This would create a carbon fee on fossil fuels in Washington state. If it passes, we'd be the first state to adopt a carbon price through a public vote. The fee would be put on the largest carbon emitters, such as fuel distributors and utilities, and the cost would be passed on likely to consumers. Estimate, estimates are it would increase the cost of gasoline by 14 cents a gallon. The uh, carbon fee would start in January 2020 at 15 cents per $15 per metric ton of emissions, and that would generate about a billion dollars a year by 2023, with a large portion of that money going toward new clean energy projects. And we can get into more details there. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, two years ago, Washington voters, I think it was two years ago, Washington voters rejected a carbon tax at the ballot box that, that we covered. And I kind of wanted to start with what's different about the Initiative 1631 approach? Yeah. So first of all, Initiative 1631 will, as you said, will create a fee on the state's largest polluters, like big oil companies. Um, and the root of all of this comes from the state legislature in 20, 2008, passed, uh, a, created a statutory requirement that we need to reduce pollution. We need to reduce pollution. Um, and since then, we have not, we have, we are not on track on meeting those goals. So the legislature has not done anything to address to significantly reduce those goals. And Initiative 1631 is, is a reasonable step to help us in reducing those um, reducing those pollution. So we brought together a large coalition of um, business, labor, communities of color, health advocates to draft a policy that we believe is the right way to reasonably take a step to reducing our pollution and meeting those goals that the state legislature has defined. Um, and we brought this coalition together to move this forward. And folks who were supportive of um, 732 are also on board with this initiative. 732 was the carbon tax yeah. a couple of years ago. So the difference in approach in part then, I think you're saying, is the coalition that supports this is broader maybe than the, than the groups that that backed uh, the carbon tax. In fact, a lot of groups backing your initiative didn't back that initiative. Remind me why. So, I mean, I think the fundamental difference is that when you put together a policy to work for all of Washington State, you need to have all of all of the folks in Washington State at the table drafting this. So we've got communities of color, labor organizations, um, the folks that were involved in 732 at the table to work to develop a policy that works for everyone in Washington State. And, and folks at Carbon Washington, the Audubon, who all supported that, are on board and supporting this initiative as well. And I, know, I know one big difference is that the, the uh, earlier carbon tax, the effort there was to, to create what they called a revenue-neutral carbon tax that wouldn't increase overall state spending, basically. And they, and they did that by suggesting um, tax cuts in, in a approximate proportion to the tax increases. Mm -hmm. Why does this initiative not take that approach? So I think, first of all, I mean, again, I'm going back to why we're doing this, where the goal is to reduce pollution. And putting a fee on pollution 
won't get us to the carbon pollution reduction goals that the state legislature defined. We need to ensure that we're making investments in clean energy, um, clean energy and and investments in cleaning up the health of our forests and our rivers and streams in order to reach those those goals. So the spending side is is part of the reason that making a transition to a clean energy economy, as our governor Jay Inslee, who I think supports <laughs> this initiative, often talks about. Yes, he's very supportive of this initiative, and that's exactly right. Right, we need to make sure we're investing in a clean energy economy and clean transport. It includes investments in solar panels and investments in. Uh, um, wind turbines, the clean energy opportunities for our transportation and public transit system. Those are all really important steps to ensuring we're growing and investing in our economy while also reducing pollution and meeting our goals. So, so how would that work? I mean, you mentioned some of the kinds of projects, but maybe take me through again how you, how you envision the money that comes in yeah. being spent. And there's a couple different categories. I think I mentioned 70% toward new clean energy projects. There's another 25% toward clean forests and water projects and 5% for investments in local communities to prepare for the effects of climate change with an emphasis on communities of color and yeah. underrepresented, right? So what, what would these some of these projects look like? Yeah. How would the money get to them? I love this. I love this question. And you sort of laid out how the money will be invested. So 70%, about a billion dollars a year will be generated from the revenue from this initiative. 70% of that revenue will be invested in investments in new clean energy. So that is exactly how I laid out. Energy efficiency improvements, investments in solar and wind, um, Transitioning our our uh, transportation system into an electric an electric system, um, including um, public transit. It's also investments in rural and municipal broadband, so giving people options who live in rural communities not mm. to have to drive as often. Oh, is that is that the connection there? Yeah, to stay at home and work, telecommute yeah, or something. Exactly, okay. and then thirty and the remainder of the investments will really be made in um, in protecting and cleaning up the forest and the natural resources we have to reduce pollution in that way. And then the overall overlay, so of that 35% of the investments must be invested in communities who are hardest hit by pollution, so health impact areas. So that means low-income communities, communi- predominantly communities of color, rural areas that experience pollution um, at a much higher rate. Who would actually decide where the money goes? My understanding is, I mean, you're not putting out specific projects delineated in the initiative. Yeah. Um, So this initiative uh, will be overseen by a public oversight board um, made up of experts in in science, health, uh, business, and they are overseen and uh, they are overseen by the state legislature. The state legislature at the end of the day will have the fundamental element. So so people would, projects would apply for grants from this, this group basically? Exactly. So did, and one criticism I've seen raised and has been written about by, you know, a colleague of mine, Hal Burton, who's been covering this, is questions about this oversight group being made up of supporters of the initiative. And I think even in some cases, groups that are represented on either that oversight panel or maybe there, I think there may be multiple panels, could actually receive money from grants through the initiative. Is that the case? And, and why is that o- appropriate? I love this assertion from, I mean, this is the assertion that our opposition says all the time. Big oil companies are opposing this initiative for many, many reasons. But I, I love that their biggest concern is that they fundamentally don't have a seat on the board, right? And if that's the reason that they're opposing this initiative is because they don't have a stake at the table about how these decisions are made, I don't, I don't think that's 
all of that. So, but it's okay for the groups that are supporting the initiative to be on the I think receive spending. I think that the oversight board is overseen by a panel of experts and and Washington State. This initiative was drafted by um, by labor, business, doctor. This is Washington State and big out of state oil companies. Their biggest concern about this initiative is that they don't have a seat on that board. I I think that's a fundamental. Um, misrepresentation. And now you mentioned some of the groups that are supporting. I, I do know that the labor community is somewhat, there's some division. I just got a, an email this week from the Iron Workers District Council of the Pacific Northwest saying that they oppose it. They say they have 9,000 members and are worried about effects on jobs. You mentioned out of state oil companies, and I want to get into the spending, mm-hmm. massive, massive spending yeah. by them. But, you know, they, they own, I think there's five refineries in Washington state. And so, you know, that seems to be their interest. So, mm-hmm. I mean, what do you say to, and this has come up before with these types of initiatives to, to, you know, the iron workers or the refinery workers or people who think that their jobs could be at risk as we, as we sort of change the energy economy in Washington? Yeah. So we worked really hard in the drafting of this initiative, A, to ensure that this would work for Washington and that we had labor and labor and workers at the table drafting this policy. And we know that this transition is not going to be easy, right? We need to make sure we're investing in a new clean energy economy. And through this initiative, we will help create 40,000 new jobs in Washington in this economy. Um, and we've built in protections for workers like the folks who are who 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 are concerned about this to ensure that we're protecting them. And what are some of those protections? Um, outlined in this initiative, there are there are tools and resources for job training for um, ensuring that uh, we're investing in um, investing in workers who are retiring and supporting them through this this process. I know that one another uh, argument raised by some opponents is that this is a regressive type of tax that might fall disproportionately on working people who, you know, their gas prices go up, they, they have to pay more, possibly in utility costs. And I, I do recall that the Carbon Washington Initiative that we talked about a couple of years ago tried to address that kind of concern by, as I said before, cutting some other taxes as they raise the carbon tax. And they also funded the earned income tax credit, basically the state version of that, which would have been a pretty broad and, and something the legislature has sought to do for a while. They just have never funded it. Do you think that, or what do you make of that criticism that somehow this is regressive? Yeah, I think that that criticism is often coming from big oil companies. Um, <laughs> uh, and I want to go back to that, right? Big oil is opposed to this because this will impact their bottom line. They spent, they're spending $20 million on on trying to kill this initiative and trying to buy Washington State on this initiative because they don't think it will impact, they they know it will impact their bottom line. And I also want to go back to who was at the table in crafting this initiative. The reason we have such broad support, we have the largest initiative and most diverse initiative coalition in Washington State history, and we have communities of color groups, low-income advocates, labor unions who are all at the table because 
um, because we have a problem we need to solve and we know we have a clear plan and a path to solve it and ensuring investments and that's that's key like in the investment side of this ensuring we are investing in a clean energy economy investing in communities who are hardest hit by pollution because low-income communities are already paying the price in our health they, we have higher rates of asthma and higher but impacts of health in these communities already. obviously not every union I mean the iron workers are not they're not the oil companies they're the iron workers so there's some people saying they think it could be disproportionately affect either their jobs or I mean would you deny that this is a regressive tax yes I would how is it targeted toward higher income people then I think it's targeted first of all towards big oil companies this is a fee on pollution so the folks who are making the folks who are are owning that fee are big polluters but doesn't that get passed on to consumers and drivers and people who pay electric bills. You know, if if big oil companies thought that they would pass this on, I don't think they'd be spending $20 million to oppose this initiative. They, they um, big oil companies know that they won't be passing this on or a large amount of this on to consumers. You think they'll just eat it? I think that... the. I think that what research shows and how this type of fee or taxes have worked in other states across the board, these oil companies exist in a large marketplace and they have not passed this on. But the but the estimates that I've seen are is that it will increase the cost of gas. So how is it not being passed on? If they on? were to pass on every penny, that's what it would cost. But but our research and what the, what we've seen is that that is not the case. And if that were the case, they wouldn't be spending $20 million to oppose this initiative. There's also some exemptions in the initiative. And, you know, lawmaking is always difficult and you're bringing together a coalition, so I understand it. But I wanted to ask you <laughs> about some of it. Um, the Transalta coal plant, power plant in Centralia, I think is exempted. It's yeah. the largest point source of, of uh, greenhouse gases. But I understand that it's being exempted because, well, why don't you explain it? Yeah. So I, I love that the big oil companies are using this as an example. They're saying... Um, you know, it's in their TV. Ads, it's in their, think, yeah. it, the coal plant is literally in their TV ad. And I love that they use that because that plant is closing in 2020 or is starting their closure in 2020 and will be closing down by 2025. And the vision for that project is that solar panels will be, it'll become a solar farm and wind farm on that site where there was a mine. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with this initiative. And if we were to place a fee on Transalta, it would slow down that transition process, and that is not what we want. Our goal, every part of this initiative, is to ensure that we are reducing pollution, and um, that's the goal we're trying to reach. So that is an entirely misleading claim. There, there's also some exemptions for, I think, there's an Alcoa aluminum smelter in Whatcom County, and um, wood, wood pulp and, and paper mills and a biomass plant in Kettle Falls. Can, can you explain the thinking there? Is it... I mean, I think some of it has to do with industries that face, you know, national or international competition, yeah. competition, and they they might be in jeopardy if they had to pay this. Yeah. So, so I mean, if we take a step back and look at what we're we want to, in order to build a clean energy economy in Washington State, we need to make sure that the materials we're using, <laughs> we need steel, we need cement, and these are all these are all materials that are traded on an international market, that they're energy in intensive and trade exposed. And we need those materials. We want them to be made in the cleanest possible way. We want them to be made by Washington workers. And um, and in order to do that, we wanted to protect them. And at the end of the day, 80% of pollution will continue to be covered in this initiative 
uh, will be will be charged a fee in this initiative. So that's an additional misleading claim by our eighty percent. Well, over the course of over the course okay. of the, the exemptions aren't misleading, but you're just saying that the 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 idea that the exemptions somehow undercut the yes. emissions reduction is exactly okay. Um, and you, you mentioned before, and I, I want to dig into it just a little bit. There's a big focus that you mentioned in this initiative from the drafting of it on forward to focus on communities of color and, and be a a very inclusive organization, which the previous initiative got criticized, you know, for not taking that approach. What kinds of projects or benefits would sort of flow to, to those communities as a result of this initiative? Can you, can you get specific about the kinds of things that we might see? Yeah, I think, um, I think in communities of color or in low-income communities that are hardest hit by pollution, in, first of all, those resources will be prioritized in those communities. And that also includes rural communities as well. Those are some areas that are hardest hit. So in rural communities, it is rural broadband. That's an, an example of an investment in a rural area. Investments in public transit and reducing our reliance on or are and increasing opportunities for, for low-income people to access reliable transportation. Investments in, um, in energy efficiency upgrades at community centers, putting solar panels on schools, um, making sure our school buses are, are run by clean energy. I think the diesel fuel on school buses is sort of, can be sort of appalling. And moving forward on transitioning those and prioritizing those resources is absolutely critical. Let's talk about the politics, which you've been talking about anyway. The, <laughs> I don't know if, um, you know, the, obviously the big oil companies have spent a lot of money. I was looking at the totals today. They're up to $20 million in opposition to this initiative. Phillips 66 put in $7 million. Endeavor, which is formerly Tesoro, put in more than $4 million. BP put in more than $6 million. I think these are all refinery owners. Um, you know, they're multinational or whatever they are, corporations, but they own refineries in Washington State. Your biggest donor on the pro side is the Nature Conservancy, put in a million. I think you've raised, what is it, six million? So you're getting outspent more than two to one. Um, have you seen polling? Is this, <laughs> are people supporting this? Absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, there are, you said it really well, our opposition is big oil. They, are, they are, would not be spending this much money if they did not see us as a threat. Um, we have a real path, and while we don't have the as many millions of dollars as they have, we have the broadest and most diverse coalition in Washington state history. And we um, we're not obviously not going to be able to spend the same amount of money that they will, but we have the coalition and the team that's been working years to pass this initiative. And we'll be knocking on doors. We'll be talking on the phones with folks. And, you know, I think that I... I Fortunately, we have very transparent rules around who's contributing to things. And Washington voters are smart. They can see at the end of the day who's funding what. And they're going, they're claiming that this is, you know, low-income people are opposed to this initiative. But the reality is these are six big oil companies out of state who are coming in to spend money here and uh, and trying to buy this election off of us. And I was I was on a Lyft ride home from, I was working late last night, and my driver, I told him what I was working on, and he was... Um, he, well, I didn't quite know where he'd land. He was like, oh, I've been seeing misleading ads about this. And I was like, uh-oh, I hope they're not our misleading ads. And he said, I watched the whole ad and I got to the very end and I could see the fine print on who is paying for it. And that's what matters. And voters are smart. I think they'll see through the misleading 
the I mean, I've laid out what what they're misleading voters on already and and they'll see through them and see who's paying for it. So you think it's possible the spending could in some sense backfire? I think it I think it I think it could backfire and I think that um I think this has the potential to be the largest out of state contribution to killing an initiative and I think voters are smart. On your side, like I said, the largest contribution, Nature Conservancy, the rest of the large donations I think have come from some pretty wealthy donors, Nick Nick Hanauer um, some well-to-do environmentalists. Um, I, I don't see like a broad, is there some large grassroots level of like a Bernie Sanders level of donations or is it really just, I'm, I'm not totally equivocating them, but you know, <laughs> wealthy donors on both sides, it's just that the oil companies have more money. No, we've seen, I mean, you know, we, we know we won't have the same resources that big oil. We can't write one seven million dollar check from lots of individuals but we have the power of the people and we have the broadest initiative coalition in washington state history who are all investing in this initiative we are asking volunteers and our team and supporters to give what they can and give at a level that makes sense and so we have thousands of individual contributions from all across the state at all levels giving for folks who are giving at a level that they can one other um concern sometimes about initiatives, and you've heard this before, I think, is is the money really locked in to its stated purpose? And I think that you've said that because this is a fee, it's somehow more protected than if you'd called it a tax. And then the legislature could just scoop it up and spend it on whatever they want to spend it on. Can you explain what you mean by that? What, what kind of protections are in here that, that money would stay to its stated purpose? Yeah. So... I love that you asked this question. This is a fee for a reason. We want to ensure fees for under state law are required to be spent on the problem that they're trying to solve. So this and this, the revenue that's generated by this fee can't be spent on education, can't be spent on other things. It has to be solving the problem that's that's generated from the revenue. So it will be spent on solving the problem of pollution. The legislature, I think, of course, could go in and amend any initiative. First two years, it takes two-thirds vote after that. So absent that change, you're saying it would be protected? I think fundamentally the the structure of the fee protects it, protects the revenue to being spent on solutions that solve the problem. You know, lastly, I wanted to ask you about a question that gets raised often when it comes to state-level climate approaches or if a city is doing something as opposed to you know, the Paris Climate Accords or the U.S. government. And um, while I understand Congress is probably not going to act in its current iteration, what do you say to a voter who might wonder, well, why, why should Washington State take this step and, and kind of impose an additional tax on ourselves when it's not a really fee. <laughs> fee, sorry, when it's not really being followed by, it's not a national program. Is it going to make an actual impact on global climate change, or what would you say to them? Yeah, so I'm going to go back to the problem that that we're trying to solve, right? The state legislature created a statutory requirement in 2008 to reduce our pollution levels by $25 million. Or right, I think it was... 25 million tons of pollution. Anyway. Trying to get it toward, I think, 1990 levels of emissions, is It'd that be right? a 25% reduction from the 1990 levels. And we have not done anything meaningful to address that problem. It's been 10 years, and I think in part because big oil companies have spent millions of dollars lobbying 
the legislature to prevent us from doing that. And we have these goals. We know we have a, we all have our part to play. We have a part to play as individuals. We have a part to play as our as a state. And we're not doing that. And I think voters and the people of Washington state see this problem and are ready to take action on it. And, you know, you said it well, the, the no action is happening at the federal level um, and we need to do our part. And this is a reasonable step forward to to reaching those goals that the state legislature defined. So the projections are if this passes, it would get us toward those goals? It would meet the statutory requirements. So it would reduce about 20, um, 25 million tons of pollution annually by 2035. And I guess we should mention, I mean, it's it's often been noted that, you know, Washington state is kind of lagging behind when it comes to carbon pricing compared with, you know, California, BC has had a carbon tax, right? So is it the idea of this West Coast sort of broader impact? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, we we think that collectively and together we can stand up. But I think first and foremost, this is a step forward that Washington can take. We have we have our own goals that we're not reaching, and we believe it's time, and we believe Washington Washingtonians believe it's time to do our part, while also making sure that we're investing in our own economy and investing in a clean energy economy that will help create more jobs. And that's I think that's a win-win for everyone. All right. Well, it's on everyone's Except ballot. Except for big oil. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned that a few times. Um, well, you know, it's on. It's on everyone's ballot. It's on everyone's TV screen, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. That's all for episode ninety-one of the Overcast. Thanks again to our guest, Abigail Dorr, for joining us to talk about the Initiative 1631 campaign. Thanks to KNKX for having us again in their Seattle studios to record. Thanks for listening. If you support the independent locally owned journalism that makes this podcast possible, please visit seattletimes.com backslash support and look at subscription options. If you like the podcast, be sure and rate us on iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all the other podcast hurling devices across the internet. If you have uh, comments or criticism or ideas for a future podcast, you can reach us at seattletimesovercast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Jim underscore Bruner, my usual co-host Dan Beekman, who couldn't be here this week at D Beekman. And until next week, have a cloudy day.